what is the difference between exploring and being lost? And then he said, there is little difference between exploring and being lost. And when you think about it, it's just a perceptual thing, really. Mm. So next time you're totally lost, it just put a different spin on it. And then the journey is the destination. And those are phrases that are all associated with who and how he was and remains for so many people in the world. From the studio of Rule 29, I'm your host, Justin Aarons, and this is Design Of, a storytelling exploration featuring interviews with known and unknown extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. I have the privilege of introducing you to Kathy Eldon and sharing the story of her inspirational work as well as the work of our inspiring kids, Dan and Amy. Kathy is a best-selling author, teacher, filmmaker, and a self-described creative activist. With a life full of adventure and heartache, Kathy's been striving to live life and fill it with purpose. Here is her story. Uh, one of the things that I find very fascinating um, is this concept of how many people do not believe that they, as an individual, can make impact in this world. And they often think collectively they can do that. But it all starts, in my opinion, with that single person with that single thought, that single outrage or that single passion or that whatever it is is their catalyst. And as I was researching and exploring um, your background and history and all that sort of thing, I think you probably have something to say about that. I do. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> I, I believe that every individual has a spark that can be used not only for ourselves, but also for, for, for others in the world. And we call that creative activism. It's that, that creative spark that we all have. And it doesn't matter what your spark is, I, I could care less, but you can use it obviously to feel yourself, but also looking around and saying, how can I use that spark for others? We always use the phrase, change the world around you. I think um, it's a wonderful ambition to want to change the world. And that's great. And, and we all can have an impact uh, you know, through our individual efforts. But I think if we if we set our sights to changing the world around us, and what does that mean? It can mean, you know, there your your neighborhood. There's a hole in the, the the pavement out in front of you, and you need to get that fixed. That's fine. You know, you do not have to take on refugees in Somalia. That that's not necessary. Just look around at what needs to be done, and and or or a person who is in need of whatever it is that you can offer. And if you're a granny, maybe you can babysit or, you know, tell stories. It do, it, honestly, it doesn't matter what is fueling you, but just think about the joy that you can get from using that spark to help others. Because that is the essence, really, of true happiness. Mm. And my friend Roko Belich, who was a dear friend of Dan's and Amy's, did a film um, called Happy. And he went around the world, and the film begins with a rickshaw driver uh, and his, I don't know how many children, living in a cardboard box in India. And he is honestly one of the happiest people in the world. And it's just, he's fine, you know? It's it's so interesting that it's not about the, the fourth Mercedes or the, you know, the third whatever, or the swimming pool in the backyard. Yes, we want to be uh, materially comfortable. We want to have enough. And we're finding now what, what really matters. But it is certainly not about uh, the accumulation of material wealth beyond a certain degree. And we, again, I'm not saying we don't want to be 
I have, um, as Dickens said, you want happiness is having six shillings more at the end of the year than than your 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 needs. Unhappiness is having six shillings less. Sorry, that was a long-winded conversation. Oh, no, that's great. Well, let, let me step, let's step back really quick just to kind of maybe give what you're talking about a little more context. So, uh, you grew up in Iowa. I did. Proud Iowan. Always go back every uh, summer. So, what in your younger days in Iowa, what forms your worldview? What were the influences that really inspired you then? I am so lucky to have been brought up by the parents that I, whom I had in Iowa, by the collective around me, by the community, by the church, uh, by the, the YMCA that my father was so devoted to, and by the sense of community, my my grandfather founded the community chest in, in Cedar Rapids, so it, you know I could probably not escape being a, a social entrepreneur or a, a whatever I am a philanthropist. Couldn't escape it because that was the the, the, the nurturing element that surround me were all all to do with um, thinking about others before you think about yourself. Uh, I my parents. My, joined the United Nations Association when it was first founded in Cedar Rapids, and they enrolled me in German class at the age uh, when I was in fifth grade. I was taking German classes at Coke College. There was an experimental class, so already my worldview was expanded way beyond that of probably my my friends. Uh, I started French when in seventh grade and Latin, and um, and they we always had foreign students in our home. So we had a Norwegian foreign student. We had uh, my brother went to Italy on the American field service, and then they shipped me off to South Africa when I was 16, at a time wow. when South Africa was exploding. <laughs> and it was, uh, you know, really was a very torturous time. It was 1963, mm. but my um, I was sent to South Africa, lived in an Afrikaans family with actually the brother of someone who ended up in life imprisonment for being um, labeled as a communist. So I did have unusual parents in the sense that they believed in the importance of the world, you know? And, and Paul Engel was a dear friend of my father and Paul started the writer's workshop at the University of Iowa. So I would be shipped off summers to spend time. It was like a commune. Well, that sounds amazing. So how did the arts play into that? Because I would say that, would you describe yourself as a creative? I'm a creative, but I'm, I've always been the kind who was happiest with a cardboard box and making something out of it. So I did end up as an art teacher quite inadvertently as so many things in my life have kind of, I stumbled into it. I majored in art history at Wellesley College, but not because I was an artist, but because I was interested, actually because it was a very warm um, a space where they had the art classes. <laughs> art history classes and it was comforting and you could fall asleep and I, I, I'm very uh, upfront about the fact that I wasn't driven by art history it was just I'm, I'm unapologetic about my motivation but I did take art as a fifth uh, cl class or edu uh, education excuse me so I got my teacher certificate thinking I would never ever use it because I knew so little about art but I ended up in Cedar Rapids Iowa teaching art <laughs> right after graduating from college because I was supposed to go into the Peace Corps and they wanted to send me to Chad, which is the hottest country in the world. So I begged to be placed somewhere else. And in the interim, I ended up teaching art. And I was complete fraud, but it was fifth, sixth graders. So I was just able to get a teeny bit ahead of them. Yeah, you could, you could, you could fool them a little bit. I'm kind sure, of. I'm sure they had a good experience. But it, it was so much fun. I was 21 years old. It was mini skirts. I played Earth, Wind, and Fire. We all had a ball. But um, <laughs> it was definitely, probably they didn't learn very much, but they all loved art. 
that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. So that was your part of your influence, influence. But then you uh, got to Kenya. How did you get to Kenya? I um, the art experience and working uh, in Cedar Rapids was probably really important and it fueled my desire to leave Cedar Rapids. <laughs> it was 21 years old, you want to get out of your home. I met a lovely dashing Englishman um, the summer of my uh, senior year in college and I fell madly in love with him. So uh, when he asked me to marry him, I abandoned ship, moved to London with this lovely man and um, set up a home in a tiny little flat in London. Uh, seven years later, he was invited to start his computer company in Kenya, or to, to act as the managing director. So we went off to, to Africa with two tiny children, well, not so tiny, but seven and three, and started a new life in Kenya, which is one of the most beautiful, creative, nurturing environments. And, you know, if you stick a uh, stick in the ground, it will grow. And certainly for somebody like me, with all the creative ideas that I might have ever had that were unrealized because I didn't have a law degree or a, you know, a master's or a PhD, you could just about do anything. And it was absolutely magical what I got to do in Kenya. <laughs> now, just out of curiosity, uh, were you near Nairobi? Were you in the Rift Valley? Where were, where were you? Thank you. That shows a real knowledge of Kenya. We, we were living on a funky uh, Ingong Road in, in Nairobi, Kenya, in a sort of slightly well-worn house with big yard and we had parties non-stop parties and i ended up working as a consultant for abercrombie and kent so i would host 60 tourists in our yard and and, and it was just one of these truly magical things that i i wasn't i'm not an expert on anything but i could i could utilize the little bit of knowledge that i had to get involved with all kinds of things and i became a journalist, uh, features writer for The Nation newspaper, which is the largest English language newspaper in Kenya. So I was able to interview everybody of interest in the country. I mean, many, many, many interesting people. And they all rubbed off on me and on my children. That's incredible. So uh, I've shot um, a documentary in uh, Mathari and Kaibera. Oh my goodness, I want to see it, please. Uh, I'll, I'll, send you, uh, I'll send you a link for it. Um, so I, I have a, a deep love for Africa, um, Kenya, uh, Ethiopia, Uganda, the Congo, uh, those are the areas that I've been and worked. So um, let's talk about your two, your two young children. So uh, Dan and Amy, uh, were, now who was older? Dan is four years older than Amy. Okay. So he was always the kind of leader. As brother and sister, Dan and Amy went on some life-changing adventures together. As the younger sister, Amy was constantly teased by her older, adventurous brother. But she was always up to help start Desiree, Dan's vintage Land Rover, and the mothership of many adventures that took them all over the continent of Africa. So tell us a little bit about, about Dan. Young, young Dan, Dan was uh, very lucky to be um, from the age of 10 at the International School of Kenya, which is an absolutely incredible, vibrant, community of embracing at that time more than 46 nationalities i believe or 40 nationalities of kids mm -hmm. so he grew up with an awareness of the commonality the, the the way we're all bound together he didn't really see color because a everybody in africa kenya is black mostly mm -hmm. and b at the uh, international school they were every possible shade so i think they were grew up to be less 
color conscious than than most children, certainly in in LA or in in Iowa, where it's far more, as it were, segregated or even ghettoized at times. Uh, I'm not saying that about Iowa, but it's um, they had an incredible uh, upbringing in the sense that they were exposed to so many interesting people. Uh, the people whose parties, uh, who attended our parties, they were, I think, I think were the sum total of all the things we brush up against. And and the more thing people of uh, positive people you can expose your children to, and uh, upfront, you know, and personal, uh, post COVID, I guess, uh, the, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Amy was much younger, um, trailed along behind him. Dan uh, became very interested in journaling through a guy named Peter Beard. Peter Beard was a gentleman, socialite, artist, photographer, prophet, playboy, and fan of recreational drugs and the last of the adventurers. This is what the observer said after his death in March of 2020. He was an American artist, diarist, and writer who lived and worked in New York City and Kenya. His photographs of Africa, African animals, and the journals that often integrated his photographs have been widely shown and published since the 1960s. He led a legendary life of travel, community, and art. He was also Dan Eldon's influence for his now famous journals. Dan became a sort of a, a pal of Peter Beard's and, and Peter showed him or worked on journals at the same time you know, with Dan present. And Dan started creating journals of his own, which became something that he shared with friends and have now over the years been uh, this, this source of inspiration for four major books, three, doc, three documentaries and a feature film. So. Yeah, that's incredible. So can you share with me a story that, that uh, you can remember where you're all together as a family and you had someone just spectacular over um, for a dinner mm, party? I, I remember we had a continuous stream of, of people. And at one point there was the chef from the, um, it was a French chef who came out to work at the French Cultural Center. And I, I would invite him to come out every Saturday and, and uh, cook for, with him and for us. But I was always very bad about, about buying the ingredients. And I remember one, one day he appeared and I had, I had built a hut in the garden that could seat 60 people because we entertained so much for Abercrombie and Kent. And one day we'd invited quite a number of people to celebrate and enjoy the, the, the deliciousness of this wonderful French chef's cuisine. But apparently when he arrived in my kitchen, because I wasn't really very conscientious about buying food, all he had was mangoes, and <laughs> I think mangoes and rice. So he constructed for us a meal entirely composed of variations on mango, you know, mango soup, and then there was a mango curried rice, and then there was a mango ice cream, and <laughs> it, it just was ridiculous. But Dan at one point got so fed up with the number of guests that we had flowing through our house that he ended up on the roof and our cook, William, tried to tempt him down with some chocolate mousse, you know, but it was like, no, I'm fine, I'm good, Just leave me alone. <laughs> so they had to be fairly, uh, you know, relaxed around strangers, I will say. Yeah. Well, Kenya is the, the few times I've been to Kenya, Kenya also feels like one of those countries who maybe more than most has been uh, quote unquote stable-ish uh, and tends to be very international in its traffic as far as people that you see there, whether that's from tourism or NGOs or whatever. Uh, that's one thing I've always noticed and really loved about being there is it feels like a very international, especially Nairobi. 
it, 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 it is, and it's mostly peaceful. We were there in 1984 when um, there was a coup and the kids had flown home to Cedar Rapids to go to camp at Wapsie Camp, Wapsie Y Camp. And tragically, uh, there was a coup by the, I think the Air Force. The 1982 Kenyan coup d'etat was a failed attempt to overthrow President Moy's government. The coup was strategically planned to coincide with the war games taking place in Laudwar, a remote town in Kenya, where most of the army units and the senior leadership were away from Nairobi. A small group of soldiers attempted to overthrow the government, but their lack of organization and planning led them to be defeated and for more than 100 soldiers and perhaps 200 civilians dead, including several non-Kenyans. The night they were due to fly in, fortunately they were postponed by a day, but the night they were due to fly in, the Air Force, um, a small cadre of people rebelled. And literally, the, the, I remember being in our front yard on the Ngong Road as the military quashed the rebellion. Um, President uh, Moy's people quashed the rebellion. And watching these uh, tanks, well, not tanks, but just giant um, trucks go by with guys in their sunglasses and it was very, very threatening and very scary and a number of people died. Nairobi city was decimated uh, just by the, uh, by the riots that followed. And I went down to the Nation newspaper that day, um, much to my husband's distress, to try to see what was going on. And I discovered when I got there that one of my dear friends, an Asian um, editor, Rashid Mughal, was nowhere to be found. And the mob had gone through his community and were raping women and, and you know, I mean, brutalizing people. And so I jumped in the car and went to, to try to find Rashid with another colleague of mine. And we finally found him. He'd gone from uh, place to place with his family. And we found him and his family sort of sheltering. And his wife had nearly been raped. And he said, I'm, I'm leaving, you know, I can't, I can't be in this place anymore. And so 1984, 85, Rashid moved to Canada. And I've just been recently in touch with him. We chose to stay. Uh, the country settled down. But it's, you know, it, it's like when I went to Rwanda, uh, I went to Rwanda in 1986. And Kigali was one of the most boring, drab, quiet, sweet little villages or towns I'd ever visited. Uh, but you know, things can happen and Kenya's gone through its tough times, you know, with the hint of genocide, but very small, but a thousand people, I believe, were killed a couple of years ago in a election, you know, riots. So, and I, quite frankly, I worry about our own country, uh, yeah. what could happen. At this point of his life, Dan was exposed to so many cultures, traditions, adventurers, and was influenced by them all, including his forming of a deep desire and passion to help others any way he could and recruiting his friends to help him along the way. As I say, I think Dan was in, impacted by everybody met and he was privileged to be surrounded by Richard Leakey, who was the founder of the National Museums of Kenya, or his, his, his father had been. Philip Leakey, who at the age of 14 or 15 drove to South Africa in a Land Rover. Uh, our friends, um, wonderful Michael, Michael Marekwe, who walked across Kenya to create awareness around rhino, rhino poaching. So Dan was surrounded by all these extraordinary people. I was doing articles about them for the newspaper. And I think Dan was in, inspired by them to do his own thing. Uh, so when a little girl 
uh, at school needed a heart operation. She was from Kibera, actually, and she, her father ran a bakery in Kibera, which is one of the very large sums uh, in Nairobi and was just a couple of blocks from our home in, in the Ngong Road. Having done some work in Kibera, I couldn't let this opportunity go by without sharing some facts. Kibera is the largest slum in Africa and is the second largest slum in the world. It is approximately the size of Central Park with one million impoverished people living there. The average house for four is about 24 square feet made out of mud, cardboard, and tin with no running water for a bathroom. 70% of the Kyberian population are children and approximately 50,000 of those children are orphans. The government owns all the land and those living there are basically squatting on the land that lacks safe water, proper sanitation, and support. He decided to create a Operation Save a Heart uh, campaign for this little girl, Atieno. And he did all kinds of things, legal, whatever, some <laughs> questionable, but they raised the money. He and his friends raised the money that was needed for this heart operation for Atieno, which was a successful operation. And I think that kind of fueled him. It's like, whoa, you know, we can do this. They had wild parties in the backyard. Well, at a slightly older age, he took on a family. There was a Maasai family who lived uh, right on the edge of the Ngong Hills. The Maasai are a Nilotic ethnic group inhabiting northern, central, and southern Kenya and northern Tanzania. They are among the best-known local populations internationally due to their residence near the many game parks of the African Great Lakes and their distinctive customs and dress. She became, the mama became his Maasai mother. She called him the Sharo, which means the laughing one. And she would make jewelry. This is an example of some of the jewelry, beaded jewelry. And so Dan would sell the jewelry to help her raise money for uh, school fees, which, as you know, are very expensive in Kenya. Uh, so he went from an individual to a family. And everybody in the school was covered in the Maasai jewelry at that point. But then when he was 17 years old, he and a friend drove down to South Africa in a Land Rover. Uh, breaking down many times along the way in Desiree, who was a vintage 1971 Land Rover. And that's what he named his Land Rover, right? Desiree? Desiree, absolutely. Yeah. The first he had four, uh, but the first one. And basically, uh, along the way, they discovered, there, or they, they stumbled upon a refugee camp in Malawi. And there were 15,000 people in the refugee camp. There was no well. Uh, but he was so impressed by the sort of the spirit of the people who had absolutely bloody nothing, but they were positive, they were they were helping one another, and they were not kind of moaning. They want, if, if there was help to be had, they wanted to be able to help themselves. Mm -hmm. So he uh, went to college that year and mobilized Operation Mission Mozambique, and he invited 15 friends to go on safari with him to bring aid to a refugee camp in, in, in that refugee camp in Malawi. So the friends included Christopher Nolan, you know, the most famous director practically of our time. It included Jeff Gettleman, who's now the bureau chief for the New York Times in East Asia. It included Rocco Bellic, who was nominated for an Oscar for his film Genghis Blues. Uh, Ellie Tate, Eleanor Tatum, who is the publisher of the Amsterdam News in New York. Amy Eldon, who was nominated for an Emmy for her work as a, as a filmmaker. So 15 kids, everyone's lives were radically shifted because they found the power they had to change the world around them and have fun along the way. If you're thinking Christopher Nolan, yes, that Christopher Nolan, director of Memento, Inception, The Dark Knight Trilogy, and Dunkirk, just to name a few. This whole crew of young adventurers was an incredibly impressive group of young minds. 
That's incredible. Christopher Nolan, huh? I didn't, I didn't see that part of the story. Wow, that's amazing. And they met at school? Yeah, Rocco heard, it was a funny story. Rocco had heard about this guy, Dan Eldon, who was leading this group. And so Rocco um, uh, called him. He was in Chicago and he called Mr. Dan Eldon. And Dan was renting a room in a, a fraternity. At the, <laughs> he was attending extension classes at UCLA, renting a room at a fraternity. And I think, I, I sort of think that Rocco ended up visiting Dan all dressed up in a suit and tie, you know, to visit this Mr. Eldon. And Dan, you know, was standing there in his, uh, you know, boxers at the front door of the fraternity. And it, it was clearly not what he had expected. But Rocco signed up, painted houses all summer, and invited his friend Christopher Nolan. Wow, that is so cool. So from there, Dan continued to pursue adventure and helping others. Along the way, attending four colleges too, by the way. We were very adamant that he should have some form of formal education, but he had an education fund. He was really lucky that his grandparents had created an education fund, but he didn't want to spend it on a conventional education. So he convinced somehow his grandparents that he could be allowed to invest in a, this dilapidated old Land Rover uh, and go on that trip across Africa, which was obviously far more beneficial to him than you know, a, a, a semester doing anything in the world. You right. learn more. He said, I will learn more about economics by bargaining, bargaining in a souk. He, he, he interspersed the adventure and exploration. Um, safari is a way of life to explore the known and unknown, distant and near, to see with the eyes of a child all traces of horror, utopia or hell. That was his mission statement for safari as a way of life. And his other, you know, uh, he said, what is, what is the difference between exploring and being lost? And then he said, there is little difference between exploring and being lost. When you think about it, it's just a perceptual thing, really. Mm. You know, uh, so next time you're totally lost, it just put a different spin on it. And then the journey is the destination. And those are phrases that are all associated with who and how he was and remains for so many people in the world. Dan was headed back to UCLA when a friend of his who was with uh, Reuters News Agency said that there, there was a, a possible famine in Somalia and would Dan please come along and take photographs if there really was a famine uh, with his friend Adrian, uh, Aiden Hartley. And so Dan, instead of going back to UCLA at that point, um, packed up and jumped on a plane with Aiden and arrived in, in Somalia to discover a horrific yet unreported famine. He took photographs of thousands of, you know, hundreds of dying people out of thousands who were dying. And the photographs went back to Reuters and they stimulated a global outcry because nobody'd seen it. And uh, journalists arrived from all over the world, including Dan Rather and Diane Sawyer, to, to tell those stories. So Dan was so excited about the power of his story to generate excitement and, and, and create a response. Um, there was a global response called Operation Restore Hope. The Dan said, look, I'm not going back to college right now. I want to stay on and, and see this story through. The United Task Force, UNITAF, was a United States-led, United Nations-sanctioned multinational force, which operated in Somalia from December 1992 until May 1993. This United States initiative, codenamed Operation Restore Freedom, was charged with carrying out United Nations Security Council Resolution 794 to create a protected environment for conducting humanitarian operations in the southern half of the country. 
Another point of history during this time was when the operation that the movie Black Hawk Down was also made after. So he stayed in Nairobi and Somalia, was hired by Reuters to be uh, their man in Somalia for many months. And during the course of that time, it was really harrowing for him. He was 21 years old, uh, barely, actually 22, over the course of time, but seeing things that none of us can even fathom, you know, of, of really torture. And, and he, he visited this hospital one day and there was a, a, a young girl who was holding a baby and they'd been killed by a, a single bullet and walked into another room where they were preparing a young girl's body for, you know, burial. And it was just absolutely horrifying. It really, it really screwed up his brain for quite a while. But he decided he was going to carry on until the story was done. But he decided he wanted to go back to, to UCLA and it was, it, 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 things were winding down. But unfortunately, um, he, as things got very, very bad because the situation was dangerous beyond measure in, in Somalia and people were being killed and a young aid worker was killed. And I said, Dan, don't you think it's time you went? I called him up. Please, you know, it's time that you left. And he said, Mom, I can't go. Please don't ask me to leave. I, I can't go. And it transpired that uh, Reuters had asked him to stay on for another two weeks while they found a replacement for him so that he could go back to college. And tragically, during that period, there was a terrible bombing by UN forces of a house where they believed General Idid, who was the warlord, was hiding. And the warlord wasn't there. But uh, the bombing raid had collateral damage of several hundred people were wounded and about 80 people were killed. The survivors ran to the journalist's uh, hotel where Dan was staying and begged the journalist to come and tell the story. The journalists, including Dan, said, look, look we really can't do that um, unless we're protected. They said, don't worry, we will take care of you. But when the journalists under protection arrived at the house, uh, tragically, um, the, the, the crowd that had gathered in the compound was so enraged with what had happened that they beat the stone and shot the four journalists to death. And Dan, aged 22, was the youngest amongst them, uh, but he was killed. I got it. I understood why they did it. I hated what they did, but I totally understood what, why they did what they did. They were angry and retaliating against injustice, which I understand. When did you, I'm so sorry, by the way. No, I mean, it, and the Somalis lost, you know, 80 people. We lost one, one child, they lost hundreds. When did you find uh, Dan's journals? Did you know about them before the incident? Yeah, we knew about them from the time he was 14 and he would, you know, carry them around and throw them back to the Land Rover and show us uh, but we would find one, we found three in, in uh, LA where he visited an aunt, I found four in my flat in London. They just kept popping up all over the world. And uh, it was quite amazing. And I just, I didn't honestly understand quite how remarkable they were because he was my son and I just took it for granted. But they were seen by um, an editor at, at Chronicle uh, Publishing House. And immediately they said, we want to do four books about your son. So there have been four books published uh, about his work, The Journey is a Destination, The Art of Life, which was done by an Iowa writer, Jennifer New, who's a dear friend of Dave Gould, and, uh, and two other books. It's, it's pretty incredible, actually. <laughs> so, so far as a way of life. This was Dan's mission statement. Safari is a way of life. 
to explore the unknown and the familiar, distant and near, and to record it in detail with the eyes of a child. Any beauty, of the flesh or otherwise, horror, irony, traces of utopia or hell. Select your team with care, but when in doubt, take on some new crew and give them a chance. But avoid law costs, fluctuations, and sincerity with your best people. What was next for Kathy? We talked about that. After Dan was killed, I um, we, we had a big uh, celebration of life on the Ngong Hills in, in Kenya. And the head of Reuters came down and the head of the Associated Press, but I tackled the head of Reuters. I said, look, we cannot let these lives be in vain. We have to transform the horror of this into something positive. And to his credit, he said, Mark Hill said immediately, I, I'll do anything, you know, anything we can. And so together with the Associated Press, we started tackling things and we created conferences and seminars. We did a, a, a book called um, Images of Conflict, an, a traveling exhibit that went to 10 countries and just focused on safety of journalists at risk. And really that became my, my kind of fuel during that time. And it's so often the case where someone, particularly mothers, I will say, where something has happened to a child, they will make it their, their purpose to, whether it's mothers against drunk driving, driving or opiates or whatever it is, often people will try to transform that into something positive. And it certainly doesn't have to be a major endeavor. It can be creating a little fund for a kid down the road, you know, in memory of your child. But I think for me that the, the act of doing that was my survival. And I think the, the pain of grief could have just completely uh, immolated me. I mean, I would, have, I, would have, I would have died inside and probably outside as well if I hadn't done it. Well, thank you for doing that because from that, um, is that where you and Amy came up with the creative visions? Well, yeah, actually, um, we started off uh, focused on journalists, and then we w realized that in all that endeavor, we were still grieving, horrified, you know, deeply. And everybody watching this, listening to this, is going to have an experience of loss, you know, multiple experiences of loss, and will know the power of grief. And at one point, um, I was talking to Amy, and she dropped out of college, and she said, Mom, I can't go on. I'm just, I can't do this. And I was sort of looking around the room and I, I caught sight of a dream catcher in my bedroom. And I said, Amy, I know you can make an angel catcher. Uh, and, and she said, what's that? And she, I said, well, it's, it's, it's a book to capture the memories of Dan and everything about him. She, she was forgetting, you know, we, after about a year, you tend to forget the, the memories and the way the voice sounded and just the little special bits that your relationship with that person. So at Christmas time, she came back with this uh, big book filled with her memories. And I, I, I saw it as a real publishing opportunity or, you know, for, for other people. And I've always been a, a writer and, a, you know, had not, several books already out. And so we created Angel Catcher, A Journal of Loss and Remembrance and brought it to Chronicle, which had already taken Dan's book. And the editor had lost her father a week before, burst into tears and said, we're publishing this. So it's now been in, in print since 1990s and is still right now with this tragic circumstance of, of around us with so many deaths, it's still providing comfort. I could not write that book now because I'm not in that space, but that book inspired Soul Catcher and then Love Catcher after it. So, you know, it's really taking the experiences that happen to us and using them as fodder for creative out expression. Mm. So it's beyond thrival. <laughs> <laughs> 
After chatting about her books, we talked about the movie she produced of Dan's life called The Journey is the Destination, which, by the way, you can now watch on Netflix. From there, we shifted as I talked to her about the current state of the world and how her work with Creative Visions, which is aimed to help ignite social change globally through the network of creative activists and the power of media and the arts, can be engaged with the current state of everything. Since 1998, uh, I've been deeply involved with an organization called Creative Visions, which I founded uh, and my daughter was in college when we started Creative Visions. And we focus on people using art, music, dance, drama, film, journalism, but it's all about storytelling because storytelling is the essence of everything. And you right now are being an extraordinary storyteller and, and sharing yours and other people's stories to inspire people to react and, and act. So that's what we do with Creative Visions. And we've worked with hundreds of projects and, and productions, thousands of people, touched a, you know, a hundred, hundred million people we reckon through the productions that have gone through Creative Visions and a million school kids through Rock Your World. You know, the statistics are meaningless, but really, what does that translate into? What kind of impact does it translate into? So over the last two and a half months, we've really pivoted quite drastically. Our Rock Your World program is now supporting educators, parents at home, youth who are so profoundly impacted by this. I, I mean, it just, honestly, when I think about the devastation of their lives, and, and yes, there are many wonderful aspects of it, but these kids are facing a deeply uncertain future, as are we all, but they're young and their hopes and dreams are, are, are really being impacted. So how do we equip them with the belief that they have power to change the world around them, where they can be forces? And that sort of entrepreneurial spirit is really important and the storytelling around it. So we're doing a lot with Rock Your World and you can visit it. We've um, added many resources on Creative Visions for people just to sort of stay positive, you know, and and, and put uh, included a lot of the uh, films that we've ha worked with or the people who we've worked with who have their own films. So we're trying to be a resource center to just keep people you know, with things they can access that we're going to uplift them and educate them and inspire them and inform them. So we're doing a lot of that. Most recently, we've taken on a project called COVID Smart, and it is an education program to equip business leaders to be able to go back to work. And it's a really cool prog program online. And we're acting both as a fiscal sponsor, which is the charitable aspect of, of the program and also as a, a marketing entity for this. You say, well, what does that have to do with Creative Visions? We are about communicating solutions to the world's most difficult challenges. And right now, getting back to work is really counts as one of the most important things that we can be supporting. Because if we can't get back to work, you know, we remain in a depressed state, uh, both mentally and also uh, society will be depressed. So we're very excited about that. We're working to create a, an we have an impact fund, and now we're creating a space for films that are actually about the COVID situation. Mm -hmm. Two have come in in the last two days, and fascinating, you know, of, of following people all over the world who are dealing with COVID. Um, South Africa, a guy who's writer who's locked away in eleventh floor um, by himself. Japan, a woman who's going through chemo, um, you know, just on top of of COVID. Just fascinating stories. So we are trying very hard to be as relevant as we can be. We're creating 
even more excitingly, we're, um, we have a, the most beautiful place on earth uh, in Malibu overlooking the ocean. And it's been this vibrant hub of people shoulder to shoulder, barely able to move through our, on our, during our sundowners, which are our gathering places for people to share ideas and thoughts and drink and have fun and tell stories and listen to music. Can't do that right now. So we're creating Creative Visions as a virtual, Creative Visions virtual. So we've got a, um, a studio up there now where we're going to be able to produce weddings and bar mitzvahs and <laughs> conferences and summits and podcasts and all kinds of things to be able to utilize that space in the most constructive, positive way until we can gather together down the line. But I believe this is enormous opportunities for the people who are listening to you of exploring what how do we take our creative spark and how do we, you know, blow oxygen, blow air? Because right now people are feeling down. How do we get that bounce? How do we get back up when we're feeling down? That's another one of the projects. I want to do a podcast that will be helping people get back up when they're feeling down. So that's, I'm very excited about that. Well, by the way, please do that podcast because we can't have enough of that right now. Yeah, for and, sure. <laughs> one of the, my favorite concepts is that if we each do the no big deal, oh, I can do that, that's no big deal, bake cookies, whatever, I can do that. But if we put our no big deal together with other people's no big deal, we can do the never been done before and, and, and enjoy the journey. And we should all be enjoying this journey. Goodness knows there's no point in life if we can't have some enjoyment along the way and do some good. Thank you, Kathy, for your endless energy and desire to do what you can to make this world a better place. And to you and Amy for sharing Dan with us all and for generations to come. Safari Salama. I would also like to thank Sleeping At Last for providing our show's soundtrack. For more on Ryan and his music, please go to sleepingatlast.com or search for Sleeping At Last wherever you get your music. To Design Of's audio engineer Steve Wick, who was inspired by this episode and wanted to give you a message of joy. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did making it. If so, please give us a ranking on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Please tell us about our show and stay tuned for the next episode. Follow us on Twitter at Design of Podcast and check out our site at rule29.com forward slash design of podcast. See you next episode.